If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in the law. They hated me without reason. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because I have not known, they have not known the, the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. Let's pray and then uh, we'll get into this, uh, this last section of John together. Father, these are some heavy words. Some difficult things that we uh, perhaps won't want to hear. We pray that you would help us to understand them rightly. And we pray that our trust in you would not be a good weather faith. We pray that we would be a people who are committed to honouring you, whatever the cost. Amen. I don't know if you, um, how much you follow us on social media, but this week should have been the, the most Gucci music festival of them all, the Fire Festival in the Bahamas. It was marketed uh, through an Instagram campaign with basically involved pictures of celebrities and supermodels looking all sultry and spiritual on deserted Caribbean beaches, um, sort of holding superfruit smoothies and, and doing yoga poses. Uh, and it was basically, this is the dream. You come here and you stay in luxury accommodation. You're fed by Michelin star chefs. You rub shoulders with A-list celebrities on this private Caribbean paradise island and you enjoy a fantastic music festival too however as it turned out um they'd slightly bitten off more than they could chew and there weren't really any main music acts to speak of uh, the lack the luxury glamping eco domes it looked like i kid you not it looked like a refugee village it looked like you know the un had just come in and stuck up tents and the refugees are coming across the hills any minute and even the weather let them down and there was this infamous picture of the lunch they were served on arrival <laughs> michelin star i think not now the truth is uh if you offered me A week in the Caribbean with some pretty mediocre music, some okay accommodation in a tent, but it's on a beach. After the spring we've had, I'd be, yeah, that or London, sounds great to me. But if you've been promised this is paradise, 
This is an, a $10,000 experience. In fact, most of them paid $12,000 for it. If that's what you've been promised, and the gap between the paradise you've been promised and the reality you've experienced, you're going to be pretty angry. And some of the little snowflakes are so angry that they have sued. One person has sued the organisers for get this $100,000 for the emotional trauma that they have suffered. I kid you not. But in all seriousness, in my conversations with Christians, I would say that the number one reason that Christians are tempted to give up their faith or to just, you know what, God is just, well, it may be true, but I really don't think much of God. The number one reason that people just fall into, into that sort of slough is the feeling that there is a massive gap between the expectation of what I was promised the Christian life would be like and the reality of what I actually have experienced. It makes us doubt God's goodness and it makes us want to give up. And that is what drove Jesus to tell us what he tells us tonight. So if you look at 16 verse 1. Six times this little phrase really appears through 14 to 16. And it, it, it gives you the, the clue to why Jesus is saying what he's saying. He says, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. As we've seen, Jesus is preparing the disciples for when he's going back up to heaven and he's going to send the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, I'm not going to be with you physically anymore, but the Holy Spirit's going to come and live in you. And he wants them to know what life will be like between his going up to be with his Father in heaven and his return in glory. So that they're not rocked by the reality. And tonight he warns us and the disciples, look, if you follow Jesus you can expect a certain degree of mocking, of scorn, and even of hatred from the world around us. In, in chapter 13 and verse 34, Jesus told us this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this... Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And in the first half of chapter 15, do you remember he said, if you remain in me like branches in a vine, you will bear fruit. A fruit of loving one another, building a rich, beautiful community and, and fruit of other people wanting to become Christians, other people wanting to know Jesus. But that's only half of the picture. He says, yes, as you go out into the world, people will see, they'll see what I've done in your lives. They'll see the change, the love. They'll hear the truth of the gospel and they'll want to, to come to know Jesus. But not everybody will respond like that. Some people will hate what they see and they will hate you for it. Now, it's important to, uh, before we dive in to remember what John means when he refers to the world, both in his gospel and in the, the letter of 1 John that we looked at last term. The emphasis is not so much on the cosmos or the universe or even the planet Earth. It is on humanity in our rejection of God. It's humanity in our rejection of God. So way back in chapter 1, verse 9, John wrote this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, 
The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The world in John is he's basically saying, look, the, the rejection of God, of Jesus by humanity is so universal that you can just use world as a shorthand for world in sinful rejection of Jesus. Humanity and sinful rejection of Jesus. Yeah, you can just say the world because it's basically all of us. That's John's point. And so when Jesus says the, the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen, the shock is not the breadth of God's love here. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The shock is not the breadth that God would love so many people. The shock is the depth that God would love so sinful people. It's not the number of people who God loves that is amazing, but the nature of the people who God loves, people who reject him and hate him. And that is why Christians are always writing songs about God's love, because it's a ridiculous, nonsensical love. It's not like our love. Okay, with that in mind, three points, and the first is by far and away the longest. Expect hatred because the world hates God. Bear witness because the Spirit testifies to Christ and stand firm because Jesus warned this would happen. Now, the change from verse 17 to verse 18 is a colossal crunch of gears. I'm sure you'll notice if you look with me at uh, chapter 15, verse 17. This is my command, love each other. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. From the overflow of love to a response of just hate, cold hatred. Now we'll explore the reasons and and give the necessary caveats. But the basic point Jesus makes is that if you're a Christian, if you are in Christ, expect that the world will treat you the way it treated him. And we humans ended up nailing him to a cross. So why does the world end up hating followers of Jesus. Verse 19, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. It's a universal human principle and you can spot it from the playground right the way to geopolitics. We are suspicious of people who are not like us. And we find it very, very easy to demonize them to believe bad things about them and to hate and hurt them. Human history is littered with the miserable fruit of this. You see it between, between racial groupings, Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda, with political opponents, nationalists and loyalists in Northern Ireland. It even happens, you see it with rival football fans. Uh, last month in Argentina, um, opposition fans aren't allowed into the stadiums in Argentina because um, it's just too dangerous. And two uh, two people who've formerly been friends, fans of the same team, watching a game, and they had an argument. And one of them um, got so angry that he started telling everybody else that this, the, the other guy was a rival fan um, from one of the other teams who just snuck in um, wearing a different shirt. And he was chased down the terrace and thrown off and killed just because people thought he supported a different football team. And the truth is that when we turn to follow Jesus, we do change identity. We are now with the one who came from heaven, who, who is not from the world. And so we can expect a degree of suspicion, of hostility and even hatred, because we are now not of the world, we are in Christ. 
You saw it happen over Easter in um, Egypt. On Palm Sunday, a man walked up to a church to gain entry. He was stopped by the security guards, but blew himself up and killed 43 people who were there to worship God on Palm Sunday. Now, you can't dress this up any other way. Uh, Christians do not have a history of oppressing Muslims in Egypt that the bomber was reacting to. This wasn't the tit-for-tat attack between two rival groups who've been fighting for years. There have been no attacks by Christians on Egyptian mosques. There was no political agenda that the religion was just a, you know, a, um, a convenient excuse for. There were no issues of ethnicity or poverty. It is simply that the bomber and the people like him hate the Christians for being Christians. That's it. Now, we are not in Egypt, and please do not pretend for a second, Christians here, that we are in the same boat and face the same dangers. We live in a very, very different cultural climate in this country. But the principle remains, the more that we identify with Christ, the more likely we are to provoke a negative reaction, even hatred, from others. We saw last week in John 15, 7, that we identify with Christ by remaining in, sticking to, trusting in, living by his words. And so the more that we teach and live out the Bible, the closer we stand with the God whose word it is. And so the the simple principle is the more biblical we are as a church and as individuals, the more likely we are to get grief. By contrast, the world will always love worldly churches. Now, I think we've actually seen this uh, played out in the last couple of weeks in um, British politics. I'm sorry, you probably thought this was the one time in the week you could escape politics. But the leaders of both the Lib Dems and Tories were grilled in public, I'm sure you noticed, over their views on on, uh, sexual morality. And the clear implication has been, it doesn't matter how you voted in Parliament, it doesn't matter how good your public record in office is on these issues, it is unacceptable for you to hold a position on sexual ethics that doesn't fit with wider culture. You cannot hold the Christian view. It will not be tolerated. Now, if we are not clear that this is to be expected, we're going to get ourselves in trouble. And one of the big ways that Christians get in trouble here is that we assume, if we've, if we've sort of imbibed this idea that, um, that Christianity fits in with the world and actually we can expect to be popular and life to go well, then when pressure comes in like that, we'll assume, well, oh, it must be our beliefs that are wrong. And we'll end up ignoring, downplaying, changing what the Bible says. Because, well, it can't be right. Because if it was right, then, then people would be happy with us and life would be going well. So if people are angry about me believing this thing, it must be wrong for me to believe this thing. But Jesus is very, very clear. That actually, the more we stand with him and his word, we can expect opposition from the world and people to not tolerate our views. And before we grumble uh, that this isn't quite what we'd hoped for from the Christian life, Jesus um, just reminds us in verse 20. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours also. Now, the first time he said those words was in chapter 13 as he washed their feet and told them to serve one another in the same way. Now he repeats it as he prepares to be tried, beaten, and executed. And so the fundamental call of Jesus to us is, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. 
He says, I am the trailblazer, the pattern. You can expect things to go for you the way they go for me. Now, the, the second half of verse 20 is, is more nuanced. It, it does so uh, because if you look at the life of Jesus, they did persecute him, so we can expect some persecution. But they did, some did also obey his teaching. So he, I think he's there saying, look, uh, you can expect some will reject and some will obey. Some will rejoice and some will hate. It'll be like that. And he then goes into the reasons behind it in verses 21 to 23. Why is it that people would hate Jesus and hate the people who follow him? Verse 21. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. Now this is a shock to the disciples because the religious leaders who will persecute them and who will put Jesus to death would claim they, they're doing it for the honour of God the Father. As Jesus will say uh, in a short while in, um, in 16 verse uh, 2 that they'll think they're offering God a service when they persecute them. But Jesus is clear. Their rejection of him shows they do not love God the Father at all. Now how can that be? They're very clear they love God the Father, which is why they object to anybody claiming equality with him. Now, I think sometimes we misunderstand Jesus' point here a little. I've often heard people say, you can't say you love God the Father, but that you do not um, accept and trust in Jesus. Uh, Just as you can't reject someone's child and expect a good relationship with them, which is no doubt true, saying that is an ugly baby is not a good way to build a rapport with parents. Still can't work out whether it takes after the father or the mother more, but that is an ugly baby. It's it's just, don't expect the parents to like you if you say that. But Jesus' point here is not so much about his relationship with God the Father, but his revelation of God the Father. Do you remember how he's been teaching throughout this section that Jesus the Son perfectly reveals God the Father? Everything that can be known about the God of the Old Testament is made visible in Jesus Christ. And so he says um, in uh, John 14, 9, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Don't you believe I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? If we reject Jesus, we are rejecting God. That's it. Now this gets awkward because this means that Christians, Muslims and Jews do not worship the same God but just have different ideas about Jesus. Because the Christian God is the one who is revealed in Jesus. In other words, there are fundamentally different ideas about God in Christianity, Islam and Judaism. And it ought to be all right to say that. We ought to be able to to examine differences without hating one another. But the simple fact is, Jesus says very clearly that he reveals God the Father perfectly. And so while we might use the same word, God, we mean a very different person. A very different person. And therefore, if I reject Jesus, I am rejecting God. It is impossible to reject Jesus and yet honour and love God. Because Jesus is God in human flesh. 
Okay, verse 24. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. Now, of course, Jesus is not saying the people of his day were not guilty of sin until he arrived. Uh, the, the whole reason he came was because everybody, the people of his day included, were guilty of sin and needed a savior. In John's gospel, the ultimate need of humanity is to trust in God's saviour, Jesus Christ. And therefore, in John, the ultimate sin is to reject Jesus Christ. And so the point is that he's saying being confronted by God in human flesh, it provoked, it revealed what was already there. And before they were guilty of, well, they were guilty of ignoring and misreading the promises in the Old Testament. But now they're guilty of the much greater sin of ignoring God himself in human flesh in front of their very eyes. Ultimately, though, Jesus explains that their hatred of him and his people is irrational. Verse 25. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. We like to think that we are coldly rational, logical people. And if you just give me the evidence... I will pursue the right conclusion. But our rejection of God shows that actually at heart, we are irrational people. I mean, we have to be. God is the source of life and love and laughter. He invented wine and sex and chocolate. You cannot be a right thinking person and reject him. I mean, it's it's nuts. And Jesus is saying, yeah, it is just not rational. There is no rational reason for the rejection of him. What did Jesus do to deserve to be killed in his life? I've read the eyewitness accounts. What did he do? But note, um, remarkably, even, even the irrational hatred that led to Jesus' death doesn't mean that humanity is out of control. So you notice Jesus, uh, you notice there are quote marks at the end of verse 25. They hated me without reason. In other words, Jesus is quoting Psalm 69 to say, even this irrational hatred, this rejection of me, it's exactly what God promised would happen in Psalm 69. God remains in control. His plan will carry on. His salvation will be achieved. Now, before we move on, uh, there are a couple of things I just need to, to deal with before, before we get any further. The first, um, there are two questions really. First, does this mean any time a Christian um, is hated or faces hostility uh, from non-Christians, that it is because at root, really, it's because of hatred of Jesus? And secondly, isn't it ridiculous to say non-Christians hate Christians? Okay, firstly, let me be very clear. Jesus is not saying that any time a Christian faces hostility from non-Christians, it's persecution because of Jesus. Sometimes it's because I've acted like an idiot. You know, there will be times when your non-Christian friends are angry with you. And it's because you've been unkind or thoughtless or rude. So don't hide behind, I'm a martyr. Repent and ask for their forgiveness. Don't dare use this as an excuse um, just to, to behave awfully and then think you can, you can say, oh, I'm so godly, people hate me. There's no excuse for being horrible. Um, and we need to be honest enough with each other to call each other out sometimes on this. 
So no, not every time a Christian faces grief from non-Christians is it persecution, and don't pretend otherwise. Secondly, um, look, I know a number here would not call yourselves Christians, and you're probably thinking, this is ridiculous, this persecution complex. I don't think the gospel's true. I'm not convinced about Jesus. I don't hate anybody here, except the person up the front talking nonsense right now. You know, that's probably what you're thinking. But, uh, you know, you, you think, I never get physically violent towards you just because I don't believe all this stuff. And of course, you're right. You're absolutely right. In a culture like ours, and coming from the backgrounds that most of us do, we prize tolerance enormously. And we're unlikely to act spitefully and brutally against people who believe different things, even if we do despise their beliefs. But Jesus' point here really is that if my fundamental orientation is away from him rather than towards him, then ultimately, at the heart of the universe, there really are only two responses to Jesus. There is loving obedience or hateful rejection. And I may be a million miles away from hate right now. I'm just not, you know, I just don't think it's true. But Jesus is saying, look, you are heading in one of two directions. I watched um, a street preacher on Thursday morning outside Maribyrn Station as I was waiting to get a train. This fearless little old Afro-Caribbean lady bent over. I don't know how old she was, but she was bent over on a walking stick and smiling away and just preaching the gospel. And no one, no one threw rocks at her. But neither did anybody stop and listen as she spoke about the only salvation there is in Jesus Christ, the only hope in the face of death for any of these people. They just streamed past her, streamed past her. And at this point in our culture, rejection of Jesus just looks like apathetically streaming away. But the trajectory, the warning of Jesus is that if I spend my life just walking past, walking away, those attitudes, they harden and they calcify. And the danger isn't where my heart is right now. The danger is where it's heading in the future. And the question is not... Do you hate Christians now? I, don't, I doubt anybody here would say yes to that. The question is, what's your direction of travel? Is it towards Jesus or away from him? So Jesus has a sober warning for us here, which is to expect hatred because the world hates God. It's just a simple fact. The world that nailed Jesus to a cross is never going to love his followers. Okay, so if the fundamental position of the world is opposition to Jesus and his followers, how should we respond? Bear witness because the Spirit testifies to Christ is the second thing we learn. Now it's interesting, there's, um, uh, bizarrely for a religious book, um, one of the bestsellers on the New York Times um, list at the moment is a thing called The Benedict Option which is written by uh, Rod Dreher, a Christian writer. And he says, look, the, the whole kind of cultural engagement, moral majority thing has been an abject failure in America. And Christianity now really has no place in the public square in America. Um, it's increasingly um, treated in a hostile way if people try to stand up and say, I think we should do this this way because the Bible says it and it's the best way to live. And so his suggestion is actually what the church needs to do is retreat from culture. It's slightly more complicated than this and more nuanced. But by and large, he says, look, the answer is in the 6th century Benedictine movement to retreat and to form Christian communities where we just, we we regroup and we um, do life in a particular way, in a Christian way here and wait until the world is ready for for hearing the gospel again. It's more complicated than that. Um, 
And if you live in Hoxton, it's really not that big a stretch. You grow a beard, brew your own beer and wear sandals. You know, it's, you know you're basically halfway there if you're a hipster. But, um, so his, but his suggestion is, um, is a sort of monastic withdrawal. But it's interesting, that's not what Jesus suggests. Jesus says, expect hatred, but you do not respond with violence, and nor do you withdraw to a holy huddle in self-protecting safety. Instead, you continue to reach out to the world with loving witness. So verse 26. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. In chapter 13, in the first half of chapter 15, Jesus commanded us to love one another with a sort of radical, self-sacrificial, world-changing love. But if all we do is just love, people will just think, what wonderful, loving people. We've also got to speak of the Lord Jesus so people understand that he is the reason for the love that they see. And so Jesus calls them to testify. Now, primarily, these words are written to the apostles and not us. And I say that because of verse 27. You also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. He's saying the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the helper, will help you bear witness, testify to what you have seen and heard. Because you, you 11, have seen everything that I've done from the beginning of my ministry till now. And so the primary application of this is that Jesus is promising that the Holy Spirit will lead the apostles to teach the truth about Jesus. They were to teach and then write faithfully so that even after Jesus has physically ascended into heaven, later generations could come to know the forgiveness and the life that he brings as we meet him through the words of his apostles in the Spirit-empowered Bible. See, the, the purpose of the Spirit in these central chapters of John is to bear witness to the Son, Jesus Christ. He is a spotlight. And I think we struggle to get our heads around that in the selfie generation that we live in. We just can't imagine how we can say we honour the Spirit without turning the spotlight onto him. But I think that's because of our warped way of thinking about about what honour looks like. I mean, the sound tech guys at church, turn around and give them a wave. There you go. Um, Now, let me tell you how not to honour the sound tech guys. We might think they're unappreciated. They come here early. They do a phenomenal job. They work very hard. Um, so I know what we should do. We should all get up now and crowd round and look at them and clap as we do so. Uh, partly because I know the personalities involved. I don't think they'd enjoy that very much. But it's not how you honour them. They pour an enormous amount of time and expertise into ensuring that the music sounds beautiful. And so our, our souls are stirred to really enjoy praising God as, we, uh, as they get the levels right so we can hear one another and the, and the, and the music lifts us. They, they work hard so that you can hear the word of God and respond in faith rather than just get feedback or something when the, when, when the preaching's happening. So you, you don't honour the sound tech guys by standing around staring at them You honour them by singing your hearts out and enjoying the music and by listening to the word of God. You might also want to thank them as well. We honour the Holy Spirit by paying attention to his testimony about Jesus in the Bible. We honour the Holy Spirit when we rely on his strength to tell other people about Jesus through the Bible. 
We honor the Holy Spirit when we thank God the Father for sending him. That's how we honor the Spirit. So expect hatred because the world hates God, but respond by bearing witness because the Spirit testifies to Christ. And just as we close, stand firm because Jesus warned this would happen. So again, we come back to this. Why does Jesus write it? All this I've told you so you will not fall away. They'll put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time's coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. They'll do such things because they've not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you'll remember that I warned you about them. Now, I find that really encouraging, actually, bizarrely. (laughs) Um, Sometimes you read about Christian martyrs and you just think, I could never be like that. There was one of the London martyrs, I remember reading, um, who told his church as he was being led out to be burned alive, if you hear me murmur or cry out even once, you may reject everything that I've taught you. I'm just not like that. I'm not that brave. But Jesus here seems to say, oh yeah, look, the normal reaction to hatred and rejection is that you give up. That's the normal reaction. And so I need to tell you this stuff so that you're able to pray and to prepare and to encourage one another because otherwise you haven't got a chance of standing firm. And so he calls us to do that. And we need to listen to his warning. As I say, it may be that I'm obnoxious and unbiblical and that's why my friends hate it when I mention Jesus. But you will never remain faithful to Jesus unless you recognize that you can understand the Bible really, really well. And you can explain the gospel in the most uh, uh, winsome and contextualized way imaginable. And you can back it up with a humble, gracious, loving life. And yet still, some people will react with hostility and hate you. And you need to be ready for that, or you will fall away. There is much more to say about these last verses, but we really are out of time. The big message here is expect hatred from the world and by the power of the Spirit, tell the world about Jesus. In other words, expect persecution and conversion. And that is precisely what happens after Jesus returns to heaven. It's a a pattern that repeats throughout the the life of the early church that we read about in the book of Acts. Uh, Listen to the first few verses of Acts 8. Um, On that day... A great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Extraordinary. They expected to be hated and rejected because the apostles had done the job Jesus gave them and told them, John 15 and 16. And so when they were thrown out of their homes and lost all their possessions and were driven out of the city and beaten... They didn't feel self-pity. They felt pity for the people who were persecuting them and didn't know Jesus and would face an eternity cut off from God. And so everywhere they went, they told people about Jesus by the power of the Spirit. And in every era of the church, this is what you see. In every era of history, there have been persecutions of Bible-believing Christians. From the Roman Empire to, um, in this Reformation year, the Roman Catholic Church burning burning the, the martyrs in Britain from the religion of Islam to the irreligion of communist atheism. But in every era of human history, there has also been gospel growth. As human beings have encountered the spirit-empowered testimony about Jesus Christ in the Bible. It is important that you and I get right expectations. Jesus promises us that as we invite people to the invitation events, 
Some people will be delighted. Some people will come and see the love in the, in the church family and hear the gospel and want to become Christians. Someone became a Christian on Friday night at this church. Other people will hate you for it. I know people at this church who've been told by friends, if you ever invite me to a church thing again, I will punch you. But if we know that, we can pray for it. Don't turn away from Jesus and give up. This is what he promises would happen, but this is the Jesus who went to glory and will bring us safely there. Don't turn away from the world either. Don't just make friends in church and ignore the world out there. Love broadly. Make deep friends. Invest in people. Love them and share Christ with them. Expect some hatred. Expect some conversions. Leave the results to God and just get on with loving people and telling them about Jesus by the power of the Spirit. That's our job. Let's pray. Father God, we don't like uh, hearing that we might be hated. And I pray, Father, that you would help us not to give any cause for hatred. I pray that we wouldn't be obnoxious people. But I pray also that we would be uh, people with a sensible right expectation that if Jesus was rejected and hated, that the same will happen to his followers. I pray that we would be well prepared for that so that we don't... um, respond with self-righteousness or indignation or grumbling complaint against you, but that we would be able to love those who hate us, to proclaim Christ even in the teeth of opposition, and to trust your spirit to bring even those who hate to come to love the Lord Jesus. Amen.